0: Welcome back to Different Aspects Podcast, featuring the interactions of women and gender diverse folks with the outdoors. I'm your host, Clancy Simlinger, coming to you from Northern BC on the traditional territory of the Sunshine people. My guest today is Kelly Chapman. Kelly is an oncologist, environmental planner, and adventure traveler. Kelly has completed some truly epic solo paddling trips. And today we talked about recreating through the lens of an environmental scientist and how sometimes the Sufferfest can be just what the doctor ordered.
1: Yes, my name's Kelly Chapman. Uh, She, her pronouns, and I live and work on the Tla'amun Nation traditional territory on the south coast of BC.
0: Great. So how's your sort of fall winter season going so far? Have you been working on any big projects?
1: Um, I'm working for the Coastal Douglas Fir Conservation Partnership and we're working working to build climate resilience for the south coast of BC. So that's what's taking up most of my time right now.
0: So maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but just to clarify, um, when we talk about the coastal Douglas fir um, zone, we're talking about one specific sort of climatic region of BC, um, which we call biogeoclimatic zones. Um, And this one in particular hosts a, a really unique ecosystem because it is a maritime climate, but it's also super dry. So, basically, um, a specific ecological zone.
1: Basically, yeah.
0: Okay, cool. So, what kind of work are you doing on this project right now?
1: We're looking to sort of build um, in partnership with the UBC Botanical Gardens and the province BC and other partners. We're looking to sort of align governments and universities and local governments and First Nations in building um, the tools will, that will help us. Uh, battle and adapt to climate change uh, a nature-based tool so things like um different mapping layers like mapping um natural carbon storage across the landscape like in forests and wetlands and uh forest age and sensitive ecosystems and uh um natural features which lend watersheds um, hydrological resilience to pre- prevent drought and flooding um wildfire resilience those sorts of things we're looking at trying to map and model those things on the South coast and then look at ways of presenting those in a way that local governments and First Nations can use in their planning processes and also giving them like policy tools to support using those tools if that makes sense so and then bringing trying to bring people who don't usually work together together to try and find solutions.
0: So looking back on some of your work in this field, do you think you have like an ecologist origin story? Like how did that happen? So I
1: grew up in one of the, at the time, new suburbs of Calgary, Alberta, which was sort of bald ass prairie at the time, (laughs) no trees in sight. Um, so I was, I would say nature impoverished in my normal day-to-day living. Um, but my folks were from Winnipeg and they both, um, grew up uh, as a lot of people in Winnipeg do, um, where their parents, my grandparents had cabins on lakes outside of Winnipeg. And in particular, my dad's parents, my grandparents had a, a cabin out near Kenora in North Western Ontario in Canadian Shield Country and so we would go there every summer and that was sort of where I would get my nature fix and spend my time with the other kids running around in canoes and in the bush and picking berries and dodging bears and having boating incidents and yeah catching frogs and snakes and doing all the things you do when you're a free-range kid as as we were in the 1970s so hmm.
0: and do you think those experiences uh, sparked an interest in ecology and conservation as well
1: yeah I think, I think probably just I think I got it from osmosis being out there my grandfather was sort of he was interested in natural history like he always had binoculars and bird field guides and knew the names of birds and um fish and so i think i sort of picked some of that up by osmosis and then just being out in nature like uh like i said being out and finding beaver lodges and beaver dams and um i don't know scout dens and like we were just out running around all over the place like getting lost in the bush and i don't know you just i think just by being out in nature like that you you spontaneously generate a curiosity about it. So that's what I think anyways. And I used to spend a lot of time looking at the, uh, my grandfather had a big chart or a map uh, of the area. And anyone who's familiar with that area knows there's as much water as there is land in that part of the country in the Canadian Shield. And I used to just see the chains of lakes and creeks and swamps and rivers sort of extending north. And I used to fantasize about, routes that I would love to take with my canoe and which I never did because I was too little but uh, that was sort of in my my fantasies anyways at that age I used to think a lot about just taking off into the woods on my own with a canoe and uh, not coming out for a long time.
0: So after that um, like how did you get started down the academic um, rabbit hole (laughs) can I call it that?
1: (laughs) Um, I would call those my lost years maybe. (laughs) Uh, That sort of decade in my 20s, I guess, uh, I think when I graduated at that point, I had decided I wanted to enter into university and do a degree in zoology and ecology. Uh, I wanted to become a wildlife biologist. Um, And as a working class kid from a family without a lot of money, that meant pretty much all my spare time was working to pay for my university and uh yeah, I was pretty much going to school and um probably having more fun than I should have <laughs> at that stage. Um we did a lot of partying in university. It was, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun, I have to say. Still managed to get the work done somehow, but uh yeah, yeah. And then once I sort of finished university, um I picked up a couple jobs. My first job was uh, doing bat research out in the Okanagan. So I spent a summer on night shift chasing bats and putting radio transmitters on bats and um, doing that. And then ended up picking up a job working with First Nations on um, doing inventory of species at risk on Indian reserves in the South Okanagan and working with four different nations or four, four different we different bands with the Okanagan Nation there. So I was sort of straight into, I guess, university. I wasn't out in nature a lot. But once I got working right after university, then I was doing field biology at that stage. So
0: and then how did the decision come about to carry on and work towards your master's and Ph.D.?
1: Um, Well, it's kind of interesting because I worked for a lot of years before I went on and did my master's and Ph.D., Um, so I spent a lot of, I spent, I think it was about close to seven years working in the Okanagan, um, and working in species and ecosystems, endangered species and ecosystems, different jobs, and, um, and then I ended up immigrating, I was in England for a while, and then I immigrated to Australia, and then worked there in conservation, um for a number of years and I think where I ended up like sadly um I started out doing field work and the reason why I wanted to get into wildlife biology and ecology was because I wanted to be outside working outside being in nature but um unfortunately I just very quickly drifted into becoming a desk jockey I guess you would say um found myself behind a computer and I think what happened is I realized that as a field biologist and doing research um I didn't feel like I was having an impact like you're basically going out and you're surveying, you know, these species and wildlife in these amazing places that are quickly being converted to subdivisions or cut blocks or uh, sometimes they're being flooded by dams, um, different things and you don't really feel like you're having a real impact. And I think, the reason why I ended up drifting into I ended up drifting more into the planning side and um, conservation and working to try and change policy and try and bring about changes in the way we do things to enact um, change on the landscape which unfortunately doesn't involve field work (laughs) so um, and as a result of that I I think after working in the field for how long was it 10 12 years before i did my master's um i ended up realizing that it wasn't so much more science uh what we needed what we needed was we needed to change human behavior and we needed to change how our systems work and so i ended up doing my master's and phd more on they're more social science based although they were both um projects that were in the science faculty, I I used a lot of social science. And so for my PhD in particular, I was looking at um, looking at how, if and how knowledge is transferred from research to practice, and what are the conditions for improving the likelihood that science will be taken up by decision makers and managers who are making decisions on the land. So um, with respect to my PhD, well, it's sort of complicated, but I ended up, um, I I was introduced to complexity theory by uh, one of my co-supervisors who worked in organizational um, management or business management. Um, So I had a science, a supervisor who worked in the natural sciences. And then my other supervisor was uh, a social scientist in the organizational development field and he introduced me to complexity theory because there were a number of scholars in the organizational management field that were starting to use complexity theory which is sort of a mathematical theory it's related to chaos theory it's kind of like the other side of the coin to try and understand why organized or, organizations behave the way they do and if and how you can bring about change in them so I began looking at complexity theory and ended up using that as the basis for my thesis. So basically what I was doing, I was working with a big multi-agency research project in Northwestern Australia when I was living in Australia. And uh, my project was all about trying to use uh, what we call participatory methods, like trying to get the people who we want to use the science involved in disseminating the information about the science, like to try and bring them into um, the research program, like how do we involve them in looking at the research and developing research questions and then disseminating the knowledge. And the theory was that uh, the more participation we have, the more likely um, we'll see uptake of that science by those people. And then um, The results didn't pan out like I expected. And in the end, I found out it was actually because I was asking the wrong question of the research. Um, But I was able to use sort of complexity theory because complexity theory is, um, I'm not going to get into it here, it's a completely different way of looking at the way the world works. We've sort of got these ideas that the world is like a clockwork universe where we're cogs in a wheel and all these pieces fit together and cause and effect. And complexity theory is more. It's more organic, it's more holistic, and it looks at how um, the parts of a system interact to create a whole which is bigger than the sum of the parts that you can plan, for example, for an organization or a system to do a certain thing. You can develop a plan for an organization, say your mission is to do this and you're to do that. But for those of us who've worked out there in the world, we realize that often organizational systems like governments or corporations the way they say they're supposed to function on paper isn't actually how they function because or- organizations just like ecosystems sort of have a life of their own. And uh, complexity theory helps you understand how these things work and how what's actually, uh, what we think is in our control actually isn't. And the, the better we understand that, the better we can Uh, stop focusing some of our work on aspects of the way the world works or systems work, organizational systems work. Quite often we're very focused on things we can not actually change or actually have very little impact. And we should be looking at other things like how do you disrupt the functioning of a system, which is used to doing a certain thing over and over again that you can't write a plan and expect it to change. But if you change the conversations of people who work in the organization and disrupt it by, connecting them with other people outside of that system you can actually start to create some turbulence in the system which creates the conditions for spontaneous change potentially but the problem is you don't know which way that change is going to go um anyways that's that's a long story and I don't want to nerd out too much but uh anyways it it was it was um an interesting topic I learned a lot I ended up uh uh My supervisor said, you need to go back and challenge some of your fundamental assumptions when I realized my hypothesis didn't pan out how I supposed and um, I thought it was going to take me a couple weeks to do that and then it ended up taking me well over a year Um, and uh, I did end up writing a book about it in the end, Um, boring academic book but nonetheless, yeah so that 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 process did change my view on how systems work and the way the world works it's actually changed the way i see everything but unfortunately it's hard when most of the rest of the world doesn't see things that way so <laughs> it's kind of kind of have to take it in bite sized chunks to wrap your head around it but yeah
0: so you talked earlier about having fantasies as a kid of taking your canoe and disappearing into the bush for weeks at a time uh and you did eventually get to do some big solo paddling trips
1: yeah it was a long time later but uh basically i think how was i yeah at 52 it only took me 40 years <laughs> to finally do it but i did finally um do a big solo epic canoe trip across northern Saskatchewan on the old fur trade highway on the uh, Clearwater, Churchill and Sturgeon Ware rivers. So it was two months, almost to the day, 60 days, and it was 1,200 kilometers. Apparently, I didn't know it at the time, so I was midway through, I was the, I believe I was the first woman to solo the Churchill River. Which I thought was pretty awesome, considering I was pretty average. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly an extreme adventure. So
0: yeah, depending on your definition of extreme, I guess. <laughs> and Do you think, um, with your your interest in in nature and natural science, kind of academically, do you think it was kind of a, a chicken in the egg thing? Like, which one came first? Your love of getting outside recreationally or of uh, conservation? science and and natural sciences
1: yeah I, I don't think I can really disentangle them I think um my interest in science is is just really a curiosity about nature to be honest um and then from a really young age just wanting to I you know I had a conservation heart at a very young age I wanted to make a difference somehow um and my happy place is in nature i mean i like that's bottom line it's just uh yeah I, i never cease to have moments of awe when i'm out there um and it's yeah getting out into areas that sort of haven't been heavily impacted by human activity um like forestry or mining or roads and urban development. Yeah.
0: Do you ever find that having such an in-depth knowledge of human organizational systems and the way we tend to impact the natural world, um, does it affect your enjoyment when you're out there? Do you ever find yourself wanting to turn off the scientist sociologist part of your brain? Um,
1: yeah, I think, um, I guess two things, I mean, part of it is when I am in an impacted environment, then I can't, the science brain comes on and the conservationist comes on and I I may be seeing things that other people aren't seeing. And it does sort of uh, have to say, it does definitely put a bit of a damper on my enjoyment when I start seeing things that maybe are a little bit distressing from uh, an environmental point of view. You know, especially getting back into some of the backcountry around where I live in BC, where there's been some pretty intense logging um, in some like some cases, one to two thousand year old high elevation forest where, uh, you know, those forests aren't going to grow back in, you know, a meaningful like how is that sustainable that forest is those trees will never get big enough to be harvestable again within any meaningful time frame and just just things like that um and it's really hard when you've spent time in a particular area and then you come back and it's a scene of devastation and I understand there needs to be a balance with industry and conservation but it just seems like it's gotten a bit out of hand here in BC that the balance is sort of tipped maybe too far the other way in some places. Um, So that's hard. But on the flip side, especially with the long solo trips, and sometimes when you're doing something really challenging, like climbing is an example, or you're sort of tackling something, you know, that's technically difficult or demanding or managing risk. I think one of the Great things, or the things about those types of experiences, is you are present 100. You're not thinking about science. You're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about anything. You're just thinking about what your next move is, and it's. I don't know. It's it's like you enter into the true flow of being in those moments, and and I think those are really rare in modern life, when you're busy at home, and I think nature and challenging ourselves in nature gives us the opportunity to have have those moments.
0: Do any of those moments that you've had out there in particular come to mind? Um, I mean, I've had lots. Um, I don't know, I've had
1: watching avalanches come screaming past within, you know, 20 or so meters is unsettling. <laughs> um in backcountry experiences um yeah I've had I've had a few close calls Uh, probably one of the most scary experiences for me was actually when I was on that solo trip it was in a massive thunderstorm like being kind of trapped on a beach with no like with no there was a forest but it was really tight small trees where there was no way of sort of getting in there with a tent and then just being Sort of at the mercy of a massive, terrifying thunderstorm up in northern Saskatchewan. I like. I think that trumped just about everything. Like just the size of it, I've never seen a storm that massive, and just with the wind and the lightning and being alone and being so far from everybody you know when out of contact, it's just uh, that feeling of being so tiny in minuscule in the in the scheme of things is, is uh, quite something. Um, I did have one fun experience on that trip where again it was another storm it was one of these experiences where I was approaching a series of rapids that were separated by small stretches of flat water and I was trying to get a campsite on the other side um, so it was the end of the day and I'd been it had been a beautiful sunny flat calm day across a big lake it was normally quite windy so it was a bit of a coup to catch that segment with no wind and I had one of those the, the the lake was a mirror and I sort of got complacent and I wasn't my situational awareness sort of went awry and I wasn't paying attention to what was behind me so I got as I was approaching the first portage and it was a series of falls I, I looked behind me and I realized there was a wall of a mat a, a massive squall coming up behind me that I hadn't I hadn't noticed and uh, so I was trying to figure out if I had time to get over like basically two short portages, um, like two sets of waterfall slash rapids to get to my campsite before this thing hit because the other problem was there'd been a fire through there so there was no cover, like the trees were gone and so um, I was going to be out with this canoe slash sail and those squalls when they hit up there, they're cool, they're powerful so I flew over this portage really quick I noticed a big steaming pile of bear poo in the middle of the portage and thought that's not good Um, got my canoe to the other side and at this point it had gotten so dark with a squall coming on I couldn't see the rapids on the other side they're about 100 meters away um, and I could just barely make out the white of, of the rapids and I thought Oh my gosh like i don't i don't even want to go over there because i'm worried the squall will hit me and blow me into the rapid slash waterfall before i make the portage and then i thought well where am i going to go i'm completely exposed there was a tiny patch of trees on the shore um and i thought i'm gonna i'm just gonna have to make a run for that so i got in my canoe and i started paddling like hell for this little patch of trees with this big squall descending on me and i sort of got around the little point to a place where i could pull up my canoe and I looked and I saw this big black blob, like 10 feet away in the water. And I was like, oh my God, that's a bear. And he looked at me, I looked at him and then he bolted for the only patch of trees where I was headed. <laughs> so, and uh, I was like this little patch of trees. And then of course didn't come out the other side. And I, so I was sat there thinking, okay, my options are like Rapids waterfall, Squall, or bear, which one am I going to pick, and so I picked the bear, <laughs> and I pulled my, followed him into shore, and pulled my canoe up, and then we just got completely slammed by this squall, but I was able to hold onto my boat, and it didn't blow away, and I never saw the bear again, so I think he was as scared as I was, but uh, yeah.
0: Wow, so you picked the bear, I think I would have picked the bear too. Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> And so that was on the Churchill as well?
1: That was on the Churchill River, yeah. In twenty nineteen.
0: And so you you had these dreams of solo paddling trips ever since you were a little kid, and then you were the first woman to solo the Churchill River. Um <clears throat> I'm curious, what do you think it is about um solo long trips in the backcountry yeah. that's inspired you ever since you were a little kid?
1: I, I don't I'm not it's kind of a hard one to pinpoint I mean I think it's I think I think a lot to do with just the personal challenge like being able to mentally handle it and just and just manage everything there's a lot of things you got to manage and plan for just to yeah because your risk goes up with everything when you're doing something on your own so you have to yeah you need you need to do a lot of planning and uh and then just being able to handle that like those long stretches by yourself is uh it's it's challenging but rewarding when when you pull it off yeah
0: Mm, yeah there's there's kind of a mental game as well as extreme physical challenge when you when it comes to solo travel Oh, yeah. I mean,
1: it's huge. I mean, there's two aspects. There's sort of like the physical challenge, like that Churchill trip, for example, I had a 20-kilometer portage on that trip. It's the longest portage on the whole fur trade highway from Montreal to basically uh, the Arctic Ocean. I think there's one other portage that's an equivalent length in Ontario. So between the Churchill and the Clearwater systems, which is the portage that links the watershed for the Arctic Ocean and the uh, Hudson's Bay watershed. So that was, um, and it was up, it was like about 200 meters of elevation gain out of the clear water up and over through Muskeg and knee deep mud down uh, like, it, it, it's an ancient portage. The portage is 10,000 years old and it's still used by First Nations. So now it's a sort of a crummy quad track You know, just knee-deep mud, mosquitoes, deadfall, just, uh, and I did it in a single carry. So I was portaging about 120 pounds. So yeah, and that was very much a mental game, like pulling that one off, like, uh, yeah, setting up a system for dealing with it and did it over two days, five hour, two five hour stints.
0: Wow, so, yeah, I don't even know if you can call it type Two fun at that point.
1: No. Yeah. It was the most physically challenging thing I've ever done, I have to say.
0: yeah. And so, after your Churchill trip, um, you turned your attention to the inside passage,
1: yeah, that's right. I did that um uh, last summer.
0: The inside passage being the stretch of water from Vancouver Island all the way up to the north coast of BC to Prince Rupert area. Yeah. That's another route that's pretty well known for being quite gnarly. Some of the challenges being big catabatic um, outflow winds because yes. you're going through some pretty mountainous terrain and really sparse pullouts for your, your sea kayak.
1: So that was about... I think about six or seven hundred kilometers total um yeah so I did most of it by myself but I did have a friend meet me halfway and we did a little circle route or in the Bella Bella area and I did hitch a ride on a sailboat across Cape Caution uh, so I said sort of chickened out doing it on my own Well, we kind of really want flat calm conditions and I just wasn't I didn't have time to wait for that so yeah Uh, Cape Caution is an area on the mainland. Um, it's just sort of like, uh, what it is, is it's just north of the tip of Vancouver, the northern tip of Vancouver Island. So it's exposed to the open ocean. So, um, and it's sort of a headland that comes out and it's about 40 kilometers. And so if you have any kind of swell, you basically can't land your boat because just of the structure, the bathymetry there is shallow. And then you have, cliffs and some beaches but the beaches you end up with big surf if there's any swell and you have bombies and just oh just I've read some horror stories people crossing through there with massive big swell and waves and crashing and not being able to land so the prospect of 40 kilometers potentially not being able to get out of my boat and not having um someone with me to stabilize the boat like if you have to say go for a pee like uh how do you do that when you're by yourself in a kayak in rolling dangerous water potentially you know it's called cape caution for a reason so um and you have to have very good weather conditions to safely cross it um you know if i'd been a better more technical kayaker maybe it would have been less of an issue but uh yeah, I'm pretty average kayaker. So,
0: I was wondering, as someone who really loves uh, physical challenge and is no stranger to being in the elements and some of the other challenges that field biologists face, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to your transition away from away from field work and sort of the forces behind that transition for you.
1: Um. I don't know. I think just frustrating things, like especially when you're working for private sector as a biologist, you know, you get sent out to survey an area that's going to be developed for some purpose. For example, I did bat survey work on the site C Dam site on the Peace River, which you know was the last undammed segment of that of that river and is like just the most verdant productive alive gorgeous river valley you could imagine it was just teeming with life um and it's it's amazing to have the opportunity to go see those places but then you know that basically you're writing a report that will go into a bigger report that in a way it's just sort of you're documenting what what's going to get wiped out so it's a little it's it's soul, it can be a little bit soul destroying I guess <laughs> um and then just knowing that yeah and just the way the environmental assessment process works um in places like Canada it's just uh starting to change now but not taking into account cumulative impacts of like you basically will this individual project by itself has a significant impact impact on the survival of these species or this ecosystem as a whole and it doesn't account for all the other projects that are happening at the same time in the similar area that's starting to change there's now they're starting to bring in as a result of a court case brought forward by first nations the cumulative effects framework for bc uh the province is now working on that because of the legal this court case um it uh happened a few years ago um yeah so basically doing field work you're i guess in the the golden days of wildlife biology they were just sending people out to find out what was there like they were just doing inventory there was a lot more wildlife inventory stuff that was just looking purely to find out what was there not necessarily as an impact assess but these days those are rare it's primarily you know a proponent who is proposing to develop something would hire a biologist to go in and do that work I mean sometimes there's work on species at risk um, that the government funds but that's usually when um, that particular species is in pretty dire straits and generally what you're finding isn't very optimistic Uh, so I think just working working at the policy end to begin to change how we think about the value of our natural systems and trying to work science into that and try and have an influence on moving away from what I would say is a very extraction-focused paradigm in this country in terms of the way we regard our natural resources and just that term um, in itself is indicative of extraction um, and realizing that um, these resources are actually natural assets. They they um, help manage the hydrology. They help prevent flooding. They help prevent drought. They're they're if they're healthy, they will help us weather this climate storm that we're that's bearing down on us. If they're unhealthy, um, they will make things worse. Um, that. And just changing the way our policy and legal landscape views these resources, that it, that their, their value isn't just related to their extraction and use in two-by-fours or um, minerals for making cell phones and things like that. It's, the, it's our life support system. We're part of it, and we need to think more carefully about how we're managing these resources and think about them as our life support system, not just an opportunity to make money. Although, you know, jobs and the economy are important, but we need to strike a better balance and doing field work on its own doesn't get you there. We need to influence politicians. We need to educate the public. We need to change policy. We need to change regulation. Um, that's the only way we're going to get there. and it's uh it's a uphill battle. But I'm cautiously optimistic. unfortunately, I think we've left it a little late, but now that we're starting to see firsthand sort of the I guess almost biblical level of uh consequences from climate change like the flooding we saw in the province of BC last year and bearing in mind that's just the tip of the iceberg that hopefully and with uh, the cop negotiations going on right now that maybe governments will start to take this stuff more seriously um, and recognize that they're not just assets to be stripped for profit, that they're this is our life support system and we have to do better and we need to be better stewards of the system and recognize our dependence on it. So
0: hmm. as someone with a good grasp of climate policy, and how that's being shaped right now, even today. Do you have any advice for dealing with the kind of climate gloom that a lot of us might be feeling right now, asking for a friend? Um,
1: I don't know. I just I just want to encourage people to put down their phones, to get out from behind their screens, and spend some time in nature. I mean, it's just uh, I worry that we're spending too much time in an artificial world and not appreciating nature and reaping the benefits of being out there and realizing um, just sort of the miracle of all the species and the life that inhabit the planet with us and just get out there and experience it and experience awe and stretch your legs and stretch your body, stretch your mind, push yourself. And, uh, like I'm not, I'm not an epic hardcore athlete who goes and does crazy things, but I've done some interesting trips. I think, you know, you can, if you put your mind to it, You don't have to do something epic. Just get out on the trails, get out in your kayak, get out on a boat and just enjoy. And uh, remember when you're voting or when you're buying things, remember that all the products we buy have an impact on the environment. The governments we vote for have an impact on the environment. Just remember that we have a responsibility for stewarding the entire planet and not just this planet, the whole future generations of humans and other living creatures that will hopefully have a planet to live in once we're this present generation is done with it
0: ah so there you go some cautious optimism you don't have to feel climate gloom all sometimes you can just Take your dog for a walk and look at the sky. Other times, maybe then you can write a letter to your premier. This episode of Different Aspects was hosted and produced by myself, Clancy Sinlinger. And I'd like to give a huge thank you this week to my guest, Kelly Chapman, for being on the show. If you want to read more about some of the things we covered in today's show, you can head on over to the show notes where I have left some resources relating to some of the topics we covered. If you are enjoying this podcast and you want to hear more, you can leave a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot and will not subscribe to your interpretation of this event. The cover design for the show is by Michaela Seaton and our music is by Sunshine Drive-thru.